It does kind of feel like um, coming home because I grew up about 40 minutes north of here, a tiny little town, I'm guessing half of you haven't heard of it before, called Monrovia, Indiana. Who's heard of Monrovia before? Okay, we got a good portion here. That's better than I uh, anticipated. I, I graduated uh, in 1999. I came here to Indiana University for three years, um, worshiped here at Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. I think it's safe to say that Tom Ellsworth uh, has proven to be one of the, the most top five influential people uh, in my life because God used his ministry to stir my own heart towards preaching. But I, I got to be honest, um, when I first felt that call, I turned and I ran the other direction. And I don't know if maybe you can relate to that at a time in your life where you sensed God was calling you to a particular task. He was calling you maybe down a certain path or road and you kind of, you turned and you ran or you, you buried it hoping that eventually it would go away. And that's what I did. I was in my third year at IU, I didn't know what a change in career paths would mean uh, at that moment, so I hoped it would sort of go away. And yet, Tom preached through a sermon series on the book of James. And he came to James chapter 4, and I'll never forget because I've seen right back here in this section, and he got to verse 17 at the part where it says, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and they don't do it, it is sin for them. And in that moment, my, my heart just sunk, and I said, okay, God, whatever um, you would have me to do, wherever you have me to go, um, I'm going to follow. And through a string of events, God has led Sarah and I to uh, Owensboro, Kentucky, which just to give you a frame of reference is about 45 minutes southeast of Evansville, kind of nestled along uh, the Ohio River. And I have had friends and family point out that we now live on uh, the wrong side of the Ohio River. Um, it's, it's true, I guess, based upon perspective, but I do like to joke with the congregation that it is the, the high percentage of UK and U of L fans that lets me know Owensboro needs the gospel. So, there, yeah. So, your extension and your influence has penetrated the borders of Kentucky. So, we're still going to keep kind of working on that. And uh, it really is, it's a privilege to be uh, back with uh, fellow Hoosiers this morning. I appreciate Tom's invite to be here. This church has been a blessing in my life. Um, I hope uh, it can be a blessing this morning. So, uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll hop right into it. Father, I thank you for old friends. I thank you for new friends. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you use our lives. Um, it's not always from up front on a stage. Sometimes it may be from teaching in a classroom. It may be from just pouring into our own families or doing the work that we would do Monday through Friday. But you can use our life to have ripple effects that sometimes in this life we never see. But, Lord, we know they go on for eternity. And for this, we give you glory and we give you praise. And we pray that in these next few minutes, you would speak to us from your word. We pray this, Lord, in the holy and powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but the New Testament gives us several different descriptors for Jesus. Now, three of the most common come in one verse, John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. He, then he says, I am the, what's the third one? life. New Testament also calls Jesus the hope of the nations. It calls Jesus the, the firstborn from among the dead. It even calls Jesus, we can't ever forget this, the head of the church. Perhaps, perhaps the most uh, significant descriptor of Jesus in the first century, at least as far as his contemporaries were concerned, would have simply been celebrity. All right? In the eyes of the people he met, Jesus was a full-fledged celebrity. And we know this because the New Testament makes it a point to tell us over and over again that Jesus amazed the people wherever he went. You've been in this sermon series, Game Changer. 
Everywhere Jesus went, he proved to be a game changer. Didn't matter if it was with his disciples. Didn't matter if it was with the crowds. It didn't matter if it was with his enemies. Jesus never ceased to amaze. Can I give you a couple examples from the Gospel of Matthew? If you've got a Bible, um, if you grab that and turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, it's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible if you're new to the Bible, Matthew chapter 7. I think the words are also going to be on the screen. We're going to take sort of a 30,000-foot view through the Gospel of Matthew. We're eventually going to land in the Gospel of Luke. But Matthew 7, Jesus has just preached uh, the most famous sermon known to man. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded public teaching of Jesus. And uh, no offense to Tom, uh, greatest sermon ever preached. And when you come to the end of Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, we get this summary statement. And so it says in verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and that refers to chapters 5, 6, 7, the crowds were, what's it say? They were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so right from the beginning, we see that Jesus amazed the crowds with his preaching and teaching ability. You turn one chapter to your right, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has been uh, traveling across the Sea of Galilee in a boat with his disciples. We're told that Jesus falls asleep in the boat. Mark's gospel adds that he falls asleep on a pillow. Um, I always like to picture one of those neck pillows people wear. uh, on the airplanes, I don't know if that's what he was wearing, but he's, he's laying in the boat, probably snoring in the back, and so the storm comes up out of nowhere. It's common in the Galilee area, and so it sweeps over the boat. The disciples panic. Uh, they wake Jesus up in this fit of, of terror, and it says when Jesus wakes up, he stands up, he rebukes the storm. Everything becomes entirely calm. And it says in Matthew 8, verse 27, that the men were amazed, and they asked, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him. And so Jesus amazed his disciples with his power over nature. Turn a few more chapters to your right, Matthew chapter 15, verse 30 and 31. This is a really interesting passage to me. It says in verse 30, Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Verse 31, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. I don't know if you've ever had a moment when you wish that you could bring a, maybe a family member or a friend who was going through maybe a serious physical ailment, you could bring them right before Jesus. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe they've been in an accident and they're paralyzed from the waist down. They can't walk. Maybe it's not a physical deal. Maybe it's more of a a mental struggle. They're battling Alzheimer's or it's an emotional battle with depression. And you wish you could bring that family member or friend or even yourself right before the feet of Jesus. Jesus could put his hands upon you and everything would be made well. You ever wish for that? It says in these two verses, this is what Jesus has been doing all day when he's finished. The crowds were amazed at his ability to heal. Imagine being there that day. Turn a few more chapters to your right. I want to show you just two more. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus meets what the Bible calls a rich young ruler, just a wealthy, young, successful guy. This man approaches Jesus and he says, essentially, Jesus, what do I need to do to be part of God's team? 
And so Jesus says, well, uh, you got to obey the commandments. And he gives him a list of commandments to follow. And this young guy says, I've been keeping these since I was just a, a tyke. And so he goes, what else do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, if you want to be my disciple, then go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And it says that this young guy, he went away sad because already at his young age, he had amassed a great deal of wealth. And when he left, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. Do you remember this statement? Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it says in verse 25 of Matthew 19 that when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Now, that's the same word we've been looking at so far in the other passages in the Greek language, the modzo. They were amazed. And they asked, well, then who can be saved? Because you see, the disciples fell into the trap that you and I sometimes fall into. We think that God has blessed the wealthy, powerful people of this world. Those are the people that God wants on his team. And Jesus says, no, that's not necessarily the case. Whether you have much or whether you have little doesn't matter so much to God. It's more of the orientation of your heart. And it says the disciples were amazed when they heard this. Even at the trial leading to his death, last one I want to show you, Matthew chapter 27, Jesus never ceased to amaze. It's Matthew chapter 27, verse 12 through 14. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And it says in verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But it says Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great, there it is again, the amazement of the governor. Because Pilate is the guy, at least in Pilate's mind, he is the one that can free Jesus in this moment. Jesus says the right thing. He gets to go scot-free. And yet Jesus, knowing this, he remains perfectly still and silent before Pilate says Pilate was amazed. See, there's just no way of getting around it. From the perspective of the people he met, Jesus was a celebrity. People came from miles away just to listen to him. They came for him to lay hands on those who were sick. They came to see him perform miracles. They came to use him at some times. They came to abuse him. And whatever their motivation, pure or impure, Jesus never ceased to amaze. But have you ever wondered, what amazes Jesus? A couple years ago, um, my sister-in-law had a heavy, heavy burden. I mean, seriously, this is not a burden that you would wish upon your worst enemy. She had the heavy burden of living in Hawaii. <laughs> and... Um, so I would, I'd call her from time to time, or Sarah would be talking to her, and I'd, I'd take the phone, and I'd just say, I'd say, Rachel, how you doing? I'd try to console her, you know, for a period. And um, i say, have you figured out yet, where do people in Hawaii go on vacation? <laughs> have you thought about this before? Like, I, mean, I know where I went on vacation. I grew up in Monrovia, Indiana, central Indiana. I got a pretty good idea uh, where I went. I, I know where you probably go on vacation. You just finished spring break. I got to guess where a lot of you probably spent that week if you traveled somewhere. Where do people in Hawaii go? They flying into the mainland, hitting up Kings Island. <laughs> they going down to Paoli Peaks and doing a little bit of skiing. Are they going to Nashville and kind of walking around the shops? Like, where does someone in Hawaii go on vacation? For that, for that matter, where does a celebrity chef eat dinner? You ever think about that? Or what causes the jaw of a phenomenal athlete to drop? What makes LeBron James just say, wow, like I've never seen that before. I'm amazed. Well, what tickles the ear? of a master musician? What captures the heart of a renowned artist? I mean, Jesus amazed people wherever he went, but what, if anything, amazes Jesus? 
And if you identify yourself as a follower of Christ, you should want to know the answer to that question. What pleases your Lord? What amazes your Savior? What brings him joy? And even if you're here this morning, you're skeptical about God, you don't know what yet to do with Jesus. I mean, wouldn't it be helpful for you to know what, according to this book, like what type of followers Jesus is looking for? 53 times we're told that Jesus amazed the people around him. 53. Twice are we told that Jesus himself was amazed. And one of those two occurrences happens in Luke chapter 7. So if you're, if you're in your Bible and you want to turn two books to the right with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to spend most of our time here together. Luke chapter 7, Jesus has just finished Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plain. So we get to Luke 7 verse 1. We're going to eventually make it our way through verse 9. But verse 1 begins by referencing back to this sermon Jesus just preached. It says in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Now, just to give you some context, Capernaum was a, a town that sat on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. All right, and that day it had about 2,000 people in it, which seems relatively small um, by our standards, but it was in fact the largest city in the region of Galilee at that time. So this is a significant place. It's kind of the home base for a lot of Jesus' ministry. And so this is where Jesus goes. He goes to Capernaum. It says in verse 2, there, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Now, my wife sitting down here on the front row, Sarah, she likes to, to read novels. So uh, about every night when we go to bed, I like to go to bed early. She stays up late for a couple hours. She'll just sit there and she'll devour books. So if you like to read or if you like to watch movies, we've been trained that when we read a verse like verse 2, we start asking questions like, well, I wonder, I wonder what this servant has. I wonder if the servant's going to get better. I wonder what's going to become of the servant's family. And we see verse 2, we think the story's going to be about the sick servant. But as you read on in Luke chapter 7, you discover that this story is not about the sick servant. It's actually about the centurion. And the phrase in the original language is that there was a, a servant of a particular centurion. And there is a, a wealth of information packed into that little phrase. Because you see, a centurion, he sat fairly low on the totem pole of the Roman army. I don't know if you're aware, but the Roman army at that time basically consisted of four units. For some of you, you may already know this. For the rest, it, it's helpful for our story. Largest unit in the Roman army was called a legion. It had about 6,000 soldiers in it. There were around 30 legions in the Roman army in Jesus' day. So you're talking 180,000 trained professional soldiers in Rome. Now, each legion of 6,000 soldiers was broken into 10 what they called cohorts. And a cohort had about 600 soldiers each. Each cohort was then broken into three maniples, had 200 soldiers each. And then each maniple was divided into two groups of 100. They were called a century. And over each century, guess who they placed? A centurion. So this centurion, he... He oversees some employees for sure. He's got about 100 guys who work for him, but he is not a high-ranking official. Right, there are 1,800 people just like him in the Roman army, if you do the math. 1,800 centurions like this guy. So in the eyes of Rome, he is a, he is a nobody. 
Right? Nothing is making him stand out above his peers, except what we're about to read in Luke chapter 7 is there are, in fact, some interesting qualities about this particular centurion that make him stand out. So look again at verse 2. That's the verse that says, There a centurion servant whom his master valued highly. Now this phrase that they valued him highly in the Greek is the word intimos. I want you just to make sure you're tracking with me here. Say, say that word with me once, intimos. If that sounds familiar, that's where we get our English word intimacy. And so the centurion had some level of intimacy with his servant. And before your mind goes towards the gutter, we're not talking about sexual intimacy. We're talking about a relational intimacy, like the best of friends or even family. And in fact, it's the same words used to describe the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so when it says the centurion, he valued his servant highly, it means that he treated him like family. And if you ever had a boss who treats you like family, they treat you like an equal, they value your opinion, you know how much that just ratchets up your respect for him or for her. And we're about to meet some people who respect this man a great deal. So look at verse 3. It says, The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Now somehow this man has recruited the Jewish elders to serve as sort of his personal spokespeople, which may not seem like a big deal to us, but don't let the shock of that statement escape you because centurions and Jews typically don't get along. All right, these are not people who play nice with one another, and yet it says that this centurion, he loves the Jewish people, and not only that, it says he built their synagogue, which was their place of worship in the first century, and it, it seems to indicate at least that he paid for the synagogue out of his own pocket. Now, if you go to Capernaum today, you can travel to Capernaum, you'll find a synagogue standing there. I went in 2012, I took this picture. See those large white stones kind of mark the, the outside of one of the walls? Those stones were not original to this story in Luke chapter 7. Those white stones came about four or 500 years later. But if you notice that layer of black basalt underneath, there are some scholars who think these might actually be remnants of the synagogue that this centurion built. And even if those aren't the actual stones he used, they may very well mark the general location because when they rebuilt the synagogue, they would have probably built it in a similar spot. And so just to give you an idea of the size of this place we're talking about, check out the second picture. This is me standing in the entryway of the synagogue, looking inward. Um, my best friend's on the right, his name's Kevin. He's um, about 6'3", weighs about 240 pounds. So he's built like a linebacker. He's just dwarfed by the entryway. You see all the people standing inside. And most people have no idea how a centurion on his salary could have funded such a project. And so this guy treats his employees well. He's got friends in high places. He sacrificed something fierce to build these people a place of worship. If anybody should amaze Jesus, it's this guy. And that's what the elders are telling Jesus. They say, this man deserves to have you do this. And you get the impression they're almost pulling on his arm or tugging on his cloak like a child does when they want something they can't get for themselves. They tell Jesus he, he deserves to have you do this. So come with us, Jesus. Help our friend. And in verse 6, it says simply, so Jesus went with them. 
Then it says he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him. And before we look at what they said, can I show you one more picture of Capernaum? This is from that exact same location, but are now, instead of facing into the synagogue, I'm facing outside to the community. Any guess or idea what the, the stones are that you see in this picture? Kids right up here at front. These are leftover pieces of, of people's homes. You see a few door frames there. You see maybe some steps. You see the walls left over from some of the houses. I told you Capernaum had about 2,000 people in the days of Jesus, but what I didn't tell you was it was only about 800 meters wide in this direction, and it was only about 250 meters in this direction. So if you were fast, you could run across the, the, the breadth of Capernaum in about two and a half minutes, and you could run across it this way in about 30 seconds. And you got all 2,000 people living in this small space. And so when Jesus starts to head to this guy's house, I mean, he's what, a couple first downs? from getting to the guy's front porch. I mean, he's just one good Andrew Luck pass from being right at the guy's house. And so when Jesus starts to move that way, word would have traveled ahead of Jesus that the Lord is coming. And so the centurion, he sends friends to cut Jesus off at the path. So again, if you can measure the value of a person's life by the number of people willing to help them, this guy is remarkable because he has people just bending over backwards to give him a hand. And so this is what his friends say. These are the words of the centurion through the mouths of his friends, he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now notice, the Jewish elders said that he did deserve for Jesus to do this. He says, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. This man's exceedingly humble. It says in verse 7, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 8, for I myself am a man under authority. We talked about that. He says, with soldiers under me. We talked about that. He says, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. You hear what this guy is saying? This man lives and breathes in an authority-driven system. When his bosses tell him to do something, he does it. Because if he doesn't, he's going to be replaced. 1,800 people just like him in the Roman army. When he tells his employees to do something, they do it. Because if they don't, they're going to be replaced. And so when he tells Jesus, Jesus, you just say the word, what he's done is he has cut through this celebrity persona of Jesus, and he's seen Jesus for who he truly is, which is Lord of everyone and everything. And so he says, Jesus, I don't need you to come to my house I don't need you to lay hands on my servant. I don't need you to do a song. I don't need you to do a dance. He goes, Jesus, I just need you. And in light of this man's response, this is Jesus' appraisal of the situation in verse 9. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was, what's it say? He was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. What catches Jesus' eye is not that this man treats his employees well. It's not that he's got friends in high places. It's not that he sacrificed a great deal to build them a place of worship. It's not that he's exceedingly humble, even though all these things appear to be true. 
What captures Jesus' attention is simply this man's faith. We're told that it actually amazes Jesus. And consequently, there is only one other example in the New Testament where we're told that Jesus was amazed. It also involves faith, although this time it involves faith of a different type. And so if you would, I'm going to show you one more passage in Scripture. We're going to end in this passage. Mark chapter 6. If you go back one book to your left in Mark 6, this story doesn't take place in Capernaum. This story takes place in the tiny village of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth had like 125 people in the days of Jesus. So let's say that, that Bloomington is Capernaum, and then you're talking about Nazareth, this tiny podunk village. It's basically Monrovia, Indiana. All right, it's just this, this tiny place off the map. Maybe not people have heard of it. Nothing good comes out of Monrovia. One part says nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Just a tiny place. It's Jesus' hometown. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, this is what it says. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, which is Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And Jesus is just doing what he does. Wherever he goes, he amazes people. They said, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And then one of the saddest lines in Scripture, it says, they took offense at him. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there. Notice it doesn't say he would not. It says he could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. In verse 6, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Fifty-three times we're told that Jesus amazed the people around him. Twice are we told that Jesus himself was amazed. Once in Luke chapter 7 at the faith of a Roman centurion. Once in Mark chapter 6 at his hometown's lack of faith. And so here's sort of where all of this is driving. Biblically speaking, if you were ever going to amaze Jesus, you're going to do so in one of two ways. You will amaze Jesus either by the extravagance of your faith or you will amaze him by your utter lack of it. And so here's the question every single one of us in this room, in one way or another, we need to answer, including myself, including Tom, including everyone sitting here. If biblically speaking, there are two ways to amaze Jesus, your extravagance of your faith or your lack of faith, have you recently amazed Jesus? Have you recently amazed Jesus? And to help you answer that question, maybe you just imagine for a moment, your life was rewound back, it was sort of played forward as a movie. Would Jesus find faith in your daily decisions? Would he find way or faith in the way that you are committed to your spouse? Would he find faith in the way that you serve and love your family and spend time with your kids? Would he find faith in the way you handle your finances? Would he find faith in the way that you approach your, your business or you go about your work? Would he find faith in the way that you handle sensitive information? Would he find faith in your approach to your sexuality? Or would he find things like fear and guilt and timidity and complacency? Have you recently amazed Jesus? And this is not 
simply a question for individuals. This is a question for groups of people. I don't know if you noticed, but both of our stories, they took place in or around a synagogue. Synagogue was that first century place of worship. It was the closest equivalent they had to a modern day church. And in Luke chapter seven, we find faith outside of the synagogue in a Roman centurion. And in Mark chapter six, we peer into the synagogue. It's a place of worship in Jesus' own hometown, mind you. And we find faith surprisingly absent. And I wonder if Jesus were to stroll into any of our congregations this morning. It doesn't have to be Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. It could be Owensboro Christian Church or, or any other church. Or if he came to your house this afternoon, would, would he find much of the same thing? Faith where you would least expect it. Fear where you never expected to find it. I think the hard reality is that if many of us did an honest evaluation of our lives, we would find that we are amazing Jesus for precisely the wrong reason. And I don't know about you, but I want to amaze Jesus for the right reasons. And I want to be part of a church that amazes Jesus for the right reasons. I mean, Mark 6 told us that Jesus could not do any miracles there because of their lack of faith. Imagine what Jesus could do with a church that had an abundance of it. And I've heard about some pretty interesting things that are happening now at Sherwood Oaks. I know next week you're celebrating becoming debt-free. I mean, praise God for that. And imagine all that you're going to be free to do now for the kingdom of God if you will meet God there by faith. I've heard you're starting a, a campus on the west end of town that can reach more and more people with the gospel. Man, imagine what God will do with that if you will meet him there by faith. Maybe he's calling some of you to go be part of that new campus when it starts. Maybe he's been that stirring that in you. You've been running the other direction because you love this campus. But maybe God's asking you to step out by faith and impact someone else who's never heard the gospel. And of course, in your backyard, you've got a, you've got a campus full of people who come from all over the world to study every profession under the sun. And if you will impact that campus by faith, the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth like Jesus commanded us to. See, every, every moment of life is an opportunity to to walk by faith or by fear. It's to follow God boldly into an unknown future or it's to sort of cower away in the shadows. And so I'll just ask the question one more time and then I'm going to pray. Have you recently amazed Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the faith and faithfulness of Jesus Christ and for these passages in Luke 7 and Mark chapter 6. And we saw that Jesus... He amazed people wherever he went, Lord, and most powerfully through the giving of his own life. His death, burial, and resurrection changed everything for us. And Lord, we offer our lives back to you now with, with faith. We want to be at faith that amazes you for the right reason. And we do this, Lord, not to earn your love or to earn your forgiveness. You offer that to us freely, but we offer our lives back to you as a response to all that you have offered us. I pray that you'll find us faithful. And I pray that as we offer ourselves, Lord, the ripple effects for the kingdom of God, they would go on for eternity and that you would receive all the glory, honor, and praise. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in the holy, powerful, and awesome name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.